You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Matthew 28, I'll be reading out of ESV, so if you're using a phone and it's easier to just follow around along in the same translation, feel free to do that. Or if you're like me and it's just easier to listen, you could do that too. Today is our final message in the book of Matthew. After a long year and almost a half, we have finally made it. So, we will be going uh, actually through the rest of Matthew today. So we're going to kick this off by me just reading everything from where we left off to the end of the book. And then we're going to talk a little bit after that. So I'm going to pick up Matthew 20. Sorry. Matthew 27.50 is actually where I'm going to pick up. I'm going to read to the end of Matthew. So Matthew 27.50 picks us up where we were last week and then advances us further. This is Jesus up on the cross and he cries out right before he dies. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. That's what we talked about last week. Now we're going to continue on. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore... Order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be greater than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. 
And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. And he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. So bribe money, more or less. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So even though they bribed these guards, the story still got out as to what actually happened. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The end of the Gospel of Matthew. Are we supposed to clap? What is he doing? (laughs) We're ready! We're there! All right. So um, now that we've done that, there's a theme that came up over and over again as we were reading through that. A subject matter. Did anybody catch something that seemed to just keep appearing? Now, you're going to tell me something right, and I'm going to tell you you're wrong because it's not what I'm looking for. But go ahead. Something that you saw pop up over and over again throughout that? Both Marys. Both Marys. We're on the right track. Almost what I'm looking for. They were both in the book of Matthew. Very good, Joel. Any other things? The number three pops up a lot in there. The number three? I, I missed that part. <laughs> yeah, so uh, along with what Sean was saying, Mary's keep showing up. In fact, women keep showing up. This is a huge deal, actually, and this gets downplayed a lot in our churches. So today, I really want to hone in on it. This. This is amazing. Okay, so throughout the Bible, throughout the Gospels, there's actually lots of disciples. We're used to the number 12, right? The 12 main disciples. Those are the ones that we think of when we think of the disciples. But if you're paying attention as you're reading throughout the Gospels, throughout all of them, more disciples are mentioned. In fact, there was one mentioned in what we just read, right? Joseph of Arimathea, who was one of Jesus' disciples, came and got him a tomb. Who's Joseph? Joseph. We don't know, but we do start to see, hey, there was another disciple. And if we keep paying attention, we see them all over the place. The disciples at one point run into a guy casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And they're like, who is this guy? We don't know who this guy is. 
Apparently, he's heard about Jesus and he's starting to be a disciple of Jesus, even though he's not one of the 12. There's other places where 70 disciples are sent out. In the book of John, there's a point where Jesus gives a really difficult teaching and it says a whole bunch of the disciples left at that point. They just couldn't take the teaching. So if we were to open our eyes, we'd realize that while there are 12 main disciples that hung out with Jesus every day and followed him around, there were many, many other disciples who believed in him, who were trying to understand his teaching, follow his teaching, probably walked around and saw him in the crowds from time to time or went back to their homes and tried to help people understand the teaching. Whatever the case may be, there's actually more disciples than just these 12. And in this case, we see these women who are following Jesus to the very, very end. In fact, this is, this is so important because if you think of it this way, right? Jesus has just eaten with the 12 disciples. These guys have had his back through the whole thing, especially Peter. Peter's always jumping in as quick as he can to do everything. Oh, you're in the water. Let me walk on water too. Like it's just constantly trying to, to follow Jesus wherever he goes, even when reality doesn't make any sense, right? And while they are at the Last Supper, Jesus looks to these 12 guys and he says, you're all going to be scattered. Peter's like, not me. No, you're actually going to betray or you're going to deny you ever knew me three times before tomorrow morning. No, no, I would never do that. The 12 guys, his best friends who have been closest to him forever, one of them betrays him and sells him out and then kills himself because he couldn't handle what he had just done. His best friend, Peter, or the guy who's always following him the most, has now... Be, uh, denied Jesus and the rest of them have scattered except for maybe John at the cross the only gospel where we see uh, one of the disciples still around John talks about how he was still there <laughs> good old John talking about sorry John actually says the beloved disciple was still there but John's referring to himself as the beloved disciple it's a whole other thing we won't get into this right now but John is maybe the one who stuck around. But otherwise, the only disciples who follow Jesus all the way to the cross, the only ones who don't run away, the only ones who are still present are these women following him into his torment, being present, watching him die, watching him fade, watching him bleed out. They're present for that. They're there feeling the pain. They're there maybe putting their lives on the line. Because all these other ones, they, they ran away. They were afraid, what will happen to me if they know I'm with Jesus? Yet here's these women. They're with Jesus. <laughs> the only ones with the strength to still be present. As one scholar said, they're there to the end of the cross. They're the last ones at the cross and they're the first ones at the tomb. Because the story doesn't end there, right? Jesus is then buried and these women show up right away. Or within the right amount of time, right? Three days. So the women show up and here's these guards protecting this tomb, watching over it. So again, you might think like, oh, I'm walking into dangerous territory here. I'm associating myself with this guy who they just gave capital punishment. And yet these women just ignore all that and walk right into this dangerous area and are present with Jesus's body. And because of this, they get to witness some incredible things. First, they get to witness an angel, which 
rarely ever happens throughout history where you actually physically see an angel face to face. But because they are faithful when everyone else is not, because they stay with Jesus when everyone else has ran away, they get to watch a crazy miracle in which angels show up and give them some good news. Jesus is alive, just like he said he would be. But it goes beyond that. And this is huge. These women are the first people in the entire Bible, in all of history, to see the resurrected Jesus. That is a huge deal. Do you understand, like, Paul talks elsewhere in the Bible. He's like, look, if there is no such thing as resurrection, I'm just going to sum up like a whole paragraph in two words. Paul basically says, if there's no such thing as resurrection, we're screwed. That's basically it for us. Because if there's no such thing as resurrection, then everyone out there should pity us. Because we are living a pointless life for something that doesn't matter. If there is no such thing as resurrection, then all of Christianity falls apart. So the most crucial piece of Christianity, the fact that there is resurrection ahead of us, and that this means our sins have been forgiven, and this means that we'll be resurrected, and that we'll go on to live with Jesus, and that life is coming, and the new kingdom is coming. All of this huge, crucial point is given first to these faithful women. Who followed Jesus when his best friends took off. That right there is hugely countercultural. Like, I mean, today we still see where women are diminished in society, even perhaps especially in churches, unfortunately. But if you pay attention to how Jesus treated women, he treated them as equals. He, he counterculturally would do things that would kind of blow your mind. In this case, he delivers the most important news, not to his 12 disciples first, but to these women first. And then he does this in a time when people did not trust women's news as reliable, right? At that time, culturally, no one would have believed this. And that's why scholars keep saying like, this is how you know these gospels are trying to be faithful to the account because all four gospels end with the good news of the resurrection being told to women and no gospel author in his right mind would have ever written that in culturally at that time. Because it means that the most central news of Christianity was said from uh, a gender that culturally at the time they thought was unreliable. So you see the fact that the gospel writers are being faithful to what actually happened by the fact that they write that in there. Jesus intentionally chooses them to have this news. It's not like he was resurrected and hiding behind a bush. Oh, they saw me. I was trying to get to the others first. (laughs) You know? No, he intentionally showed them greetings. Hello, how are you? Remember me? (laughs) Still alive in the resurrection. Jesus did other countercultural ways of affirming women. He talked to a woman at a well. And for that right there was actually considered culturally weird that he would carry on a conversation with the woman who was a stranger, among many other things that fit into that conversation. There's a woman who anoints Jesus' feet. You remember that story? That actually is a priestly action. Priests in the Bible were only men. And Jesus says, this woman has anointed my feet. He allows her, he, he says like this was a priestly action that she just did. He acknowledges it. That whole Martha and Mary thing, a lot of times we 
get into all these weird conversations. I think part of the reason that Mary was so mad at Martha, am I, do I have that right? The reason that one M-word person was mad at that other M-word person <laughs> is because culturally she was in the wrong room. She was learning at the feet of Jesus. That wasn't her space to do that. That was for the men. Uh, that was what you did following a rabbi when you wanted to become a rabbi yourself. That wasn't open to her. And so when that one M-word comes in and yells at the other M-word, <laughs> she's like, Get back in our space. Go back to where we belong. And Jesus is like, no, she's chosen the better thing. Culturally, probably blowing everyone's mind in the room. Whoa. What do you mean? This is the better thing. We all thought it was kind of weird that she was in here. We're we're with her. No, Jesus understood this is where she belongs. She's chosen the better thing. See, Jesus knew he references in other places God's created order. And because he references God's created order as the way in which we're supposed to live, we have to recognize that Jesus has in mind this affirmation of women as equals already because that's a part of the created order. This is unfortunate. Uh, In the English translation, most of your Bibles say that when Adam needed uh, uh, someone made for him, that the, the woman was going to be called a... Anybody know it? A woman, yeah, she's a woman. What was that, Janet? <laughs> helper. The word is helper. God's like, this man needs a helper. A lot of times when we think of the word helper in English, we're thinking like servant or subservient to the other person, right? Like if I need a helper at this church and we decide as a church, let's hire someone else because Jamin needs help. There would be this understanding like of a hierarchy still. Jamin's the lead pastor. This person is taking on their own position, but they're helping underneath Jamin and Jamin's still leading, things like that, right? That's how we think of help. But in the Bible, this helper, this woman, is the Hebrew word ezer. And this doesn't mean like a helper is subservient to the man, that a woman is subservient to the man. It means that they're made as as equals to rule the world, that together they are going to do the mission that God has called them to. They're not going to do it on their own. They're going to do it together. It's not one serving the other. In fact, they complete each other. God takes a rib out of Adam and makes uh, a woman out of that rib, right? As though like this rib still belongs with Adam. I need to bring it back together. We'll call that marriage. So bringing that rib back together, like that's completion. Like the, the idea be- behind a woman being a helper in the Bible in the created order is not like Adam just needs someone else to come cheer him on along the way. Adam really needs a pastor's wife, something like that, right? No, the idea is Adam is not enough. He is not good on his own. And if he's going to be enough for what I've called him to do, He needs more. He needs a helper. Again, to us, that still sounds like subservient, sounds like a servant. So understand this. You know who else is called an Ezer in the Bible? God. God's called an Ezer in the Bible. Because God helps Israel. So does that mean that God is subservient to Israel? No, right? That would be blasphemy. (laughs) 
So to understand that helper in the Bible does not necessarily mean like subservient to. You have to understand that that word, what it means. We are called to reign together as men and women. Okay, The church is the rising up of men and women to the places in the created order which God had already made them to work together to complete one another, to do the mission in their own different ways, but also in the same way. Uh, a lot of times today, though, what we do, because the church can so harshly be like, uh, we're really just looking for men to lead. It's unfortunate, but what happens is a lot of women feel like they have to try to be men in order to take spots of leadership. And that's not what God's trying to do. God's not like, ah, I've called this woman to ministry, but she needs to be more manly so that she can pull this off. Like, I kind of, maybe my judgment's bad. I feel like I've met people in the church who are women who have had to try to be men just to be accepted, try to act in similar ways. And they look kind of hostile sometimes, like, like part of them's hurting because of it. But then I've also met women who understand like God made me as a woman and he's called me to lead and I don't need to change to do that. I can be me. And they look healthier. They don't look like they're hurting quite as much with trying to attain what God's called them to. Culture often tells us like, that we have to act a certain way to become... Uh, well, I'm trying to decide how to say this. See, here's the thing. <laughs> God is not calling women to be men and men to be women in order to complete anything within the church. Gender is much more large than stereotypes, right? Think of David, for example. David's a biblical character. In the Bible, David does many things that you would stereotype as masculine. He's a war hero. Uh, He falls prey to his lustful desires. He rules over a kingdom. These things feel kind of masculine. But you know what? David had a huge feminine side. I mean, the dude took care of sheep. He had a bunch of pets taking care of the sheep, making sure none of them are lost or getting eaten or anything like that. He wrote a ton of poetry. That's rather feminine, we would say, culturally. He played a harp, (laughs) right? And uh, he's even seen kissing his best friend at some points because they were just that close that that seemed okay, I guess, culturally with them. These were very feminine aspects to um, David's life. When we read that through our cultural lens, we're like, well, David must have been gay or he must have been a woman inside of a man, things like that. But the Bible shows you right there, actually, gender is not stereotyped. People have like, you know, there's different sides to people. For example, uh, I joke with Jody about this all the time. I'm the girl in our marriage. For sure. (laughs) I'm the more emotional one. I'm the one who wants to cuddle. And she's like, get off me. Right. Uh, I'm the one who needs to be affirmed. I'll watch chick flicks alone because I just want to feel feelings. I write song lyrics. I play instruments. I love cooking. Jody asks me sometimes, do these things match? I'm like, you trust me on this subject? You know, like these are feminine sides to Jamin. That doesn't make me uh, feminine or a girl. This is just part of the personality of who Jamin is as a man. And I can understand that. In the Bible, you have Deborah who is a war hero. She steps up to become a judge 
All these other judges are men, but Deborah steps up and she doesn't have to become a man to do it. She just is herself because God has called her to this place to be a judge. In the same story, you have another woman who runs a tent peg through a guy's skull. It's a long story, but like that, that right there doesn't seem to make any sense with like a masculine or a feminine conception. And the Bible's trying to catch your attention with the way she's asking. Junia. In the New Testament, Junia is considered one of the apostles. Some of these other apostles outside of the 12. Paul talks about all these women that he served with. Like all throughout the Bible, just woman after woman after woman who seems to be taking on leadership in the church. That includes Junia, who is listed among apostles. Junia did not have to try to be masculine to be an apostle. She just had to be herself and follow what God had called her to. Jesus calls us into a new kind of community where we step up, where, as Paul says, like, no longer matters if you're Jew or Gentile, male or female. In Christ, we're all one. And we go to do what God has called us to do. We fulfill the callings that God has called us to. And if you're in this room right now and you're a woman and you haven't been able to move into the space that God's called you to, I'm sorry. The things have been set up that way for you. But God is still there for you and God still calls you to where he calls you. So continue to follow what he's doing, what he's putting on your life. We're the community of the resurrected. Resurrection is a concept explained to doubting men. And it's a revelation, a reality revealed to faithful women. It's a faith built out of men and women completing each other. And leading in their gender. And in the end, Jesus uses us all, right? The women were the first to see the resurrection. And then they were sent to the men to tell them. And then Jesus revealed the resurrection to the women. And then also revealed the resurrection to the men. Calling everyone into the Great Commission. The resurrection is real. New life is coming. The kingdom is here now. And it's coming in fullness later. Go out into the rest of the world. Tell them that God is open for adoption. I don't care who you are. If, if you are willing to believe in me, your sins will be forgiven. You are welcome into the kingdom of heaven. You are welcome into the church. You are to be considered a brother or a sister. And you are to work together to be my bride. And to be my presence on the earth until I come back. And that's the calling of Matthew there at the end. It's the calling of Jesus for all of us. So if we are to live like resurrected people, then let's continue to live in that reality. Let's continue to value one another as Jesus did. Now, uh, a lot of you, uh, Ben can come up. Uh, A lot of you may be thinking, Jamin, there's a lot of problematic passages in the Bible that kind of say different things on what you just said. I understand that. There is no way I can cover all that right now unless you want to be here for another hour. Fortunately, I wrote a whole chapter on it in a book I wrote. So in our uh, 1208 email uh, that goes out this week, I'll just throw that chapter in there. So if you're like, I got to hear what you think on all these other passages. I've thought through them. I've done research on them. I think we misunderstand them when we read them uh, the way that we tend to read them. So uh, if you're subscribed to that newsletter, 
just check that out. And if you're not subscribed to that newsletter, talk to me and I'll get you on there. And then you can read through all those things. But we won't cover all that tonight. So with that being said, we are going to continue to worship Jesus. Uh, and the Bible gives us the ability to do that. You see people today like still questioning, was Jesus really God? Should we really be worshiping him? 2,000 years later, people are still struggling with that. Matthew wants you to know, yes, he is God and you can worship him. And that's why these women fall at his feet and worship him. And that's why the disciples at the end of Matthew are recorded as worshiping him. So we get to join with all those disciples in the new reality that they're living in. You can take on whatever posture you like as we worship, uh, but would you please start by standing. If our prayer team is available, they will be in the back corner. If you need prayer for anything at all, feel free to talk to them and they'll pray for you.